Welcome to Shorts, Season 1. I'm Jen Thomas. I'm in London, UK. And I'm Lizzie Falconer, and I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. We are two long-distance friends who want to talk about what we're reading. This podcast is about how reading short stories can show the world through different perspectives. Today we're reading As the Last I May Know by S.L. Huang. It won the 2020 Hugo Award for Best Short Story, and you can find it free online at tor.com. In this story, we are presented with a different reality. Naima, a 10-year-old girl, is part of the Order, and she has been selected to carry within her a capsule, inside which is the information needed to launch what we come to understand are heinous weapons capable of destroying civilizations. We also meet Tej, an Order elder, and Naima's mentor, and Otto Hahn, the president, who would need to decide whether to use these weapons. Naima goes to live with the president while the country is at war. If he decides to use the weapons, he has to kill Naima. We see him face this decision and back away, unable to kill her. So, Lizzie, what did you think? You know, Jen, this is that type of story that every time I read it, I come away having a different feeling about the characters and their decisions and the moral dilemma. What about you? Yeah, I think what struck me was how it's essentially at the heart of this story is a really simple premise. This question of how do we make these extraordinary decisions? How can we make them feel real? You know, the idea that these leaders of our countries hold this extraordinary power. And in this, the author is really trying to show how decision is made and the consequences of that decision. It's such a simple premise, but it really drew me in. Yeah, absolutely. It seems exactly, it seems really simple from the beginning. You get this scene of protesters in the snow trudging around, you know, chanting, don't kill children, kill the seers, which we know are these weapons of mass destruction that have been used against Naima's community. And so it seems like the premise is that after this, their city and civilization was destroyed, they never wanted that to happen again. And they wanted leaders who made those types of decisions to have to really face the violence of their actions. And so they devised the system that Naima is now a really critical piece of, where they put the code for the seer weapons inside a child, and the president is required to kill that child with a curved knife, very specific, in order to get the code. So they would have to kill a child of their own in order to kill the millions of people that they would target with the weapon. And what I think is really interesting, and and Mm. you just picked up on there, is how they talk they talk about the fact that this community is one that has been on the receiving end of these weapons. So, and they actually call it out and say the only country in the world who has experienced it. And there's this talk that comes up through the story of forgetting. So the idea that this community had forgotten what it was like um, to have gone through that. And that this mechanism that they've put in place that sounds barbaric and and inhuman is actually a means of of reminding people of the of that very present destruction and i think it's really interesting this idea of how they that you know that this mechanism exists this fact that they would have to kill a child exists to 
reawaken that memory. And there's a line where Wang describes the order and she says, the order was built not to forget. I think that that's a really key point, Jen, that you're making about the order and the creation of the order. Only, it seems that their only responsibility is to manage these weapons, to ensure not forgetting the devastation and ruin. You know, there's a moment when Naima is talking to the president later in the story and she's asking the president when he looks out the window, what does he see? And he kind of describes the city, the landscape. And she says, the order taught us to notice details. Or I can look for the exact quote, but she's, she talks about how the idea that every life matters. And just because they're in another country or another place that you can't see them doesn't mean that they matter any less than your own people. And when you think about what that means on the global stage, I mean, it's so easy to feel like this is barbaric. And the, the first thing we see is these protesters and and this kind of this sense that this is a barbaric act. But as you're talking, you kind of remember that actually the barbarism is the weapon. The barbarism is the fact that we, you know, someone can sit, you know, in a room with their computer, with their phone and have the power to destroy civilizations and have lasting effects on on people and generations, you know, for generations to come. I mean, if we are talking about nuclear weapons, which it very much feels like we are, that's that is the you know that is the the power that they hold and i think it's it's actually interesting that when you look at it from that perspective you think well maybe actually this is a very humane thing like maybe that you know that the idea that that someone has to face what they're doing that the president themselves would have to murder this child in order to essentially unleash the weapons that will go on to murder countless people from another country is maybe that's, you know, maybe there's a logic to this that is kind of unassailable. Absolutely. And I found myself, you know, at first in the story, I am like with the order and I'm with Tej and I'm like, absolutely. I wish that this was how we ran the nuclear weapons that exist now. You know, I wish that when I think about other cultures and tragedies, whether it's Japan and the nuclear and Nagasaki and Hiroshima and those communities that are still affected and the ways that they have chosen to remember or Germany and the Holocaust. I think about how that is a lot about memory and museums and thinking about the past, whereas in this civilization, it's an active remembrance. It's a face It's a flesh and blood child. I just think this is a really different kind of remembering. It's a really active memory. And so we start the story like we were talking about with being on the side of the order and understanding the logic of this terrifying weapon. And then when Naima goes to actually meet this president who's just been elected and who she holds the capsule for, he switches the narrative a bit and he says, no, you are the ones that are barbaric to force me to make this decision to defend my own people, you would have me murder a child. Like it's, it's this placement of blame on whose responsibility is it to make this decision almost. Which I think is really fascinating. You can expand that and look at that from a kind of political standpoint, whose responsibility is it? And in different countries, you know, that power is wielded in such different ways. 
you know, also the idea that during wartime, often these different levels of power come in where it's easier to make these decisions, where there are fewer people involved. So like where that responsibility lies is, is fascinating and something that I think in this story, Huang's really kind of made me question and made me think about, you know, how do we make these decisions and are the processes we've got in place rigorous enough? And I, I would say as someone who would be very much against the use of these kinds of weapons, no, they're probably not. What I think is interesting about this story is the fact that actually, the, as you say, the, the, through the narrative, the responsibility shifts as well, even through these three kind of characters that we, that we see. So there's a moment early on when uh, Tej, who is the sort of elder in the order and he's the mentor to Naima, explains to her, this 10-year-old girl, that she has a voice, that she can say know that she shouldn't, that she would be able to say that she didn't want this to happen, that she didn't want to put herself forward. You know, her tutors had taught her she would always have a choice, but they'd also taught her why her duties were so vital and why those duties had to be done by someone young. So if not her, it'll be done by one of her classmates. And there's this sense of everybody sort of has a voice in this, but nobody is able to make a, dis- a different decision. It's like the train is on the tracks. Mm, absolutely. It's like the inevitability of once you have a weapon like this, you will use it almost. You know, it's like now that this power exists, it will be used. It's it's not like, let's just get rid of the seer missiles. Like, let's just do that yeah. uh, because no one's willing to let go of that trump card. We've talked about this burden of responsibility and that sits with the order, which is to help people remember. It sits with Naima, who ultimately is the one who will pay the the price. She is the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb for which she would die and then their enemies would die if this decision is made. And then we have, of course, Otto Hahn, who is the president and the one tasked with not only the decision, but the actual action of murdering Naima and their enemies. It's terrible for everyone. Yeah. And all you can do is relate it to our current world and what we've seen in history. And I think that's the magic of this story is even though it's set in a different reality with different weapons, we know what Huang's talking about. Yeah. We deeply feel it. And by having this story center around a child and a very articulate child at that, who seems to understand her role and and she buys into the order. That is very humanizing, which is the whole point of the order. There's a lot of layers there. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think what's interesting is that putting a child, uh, and as you say, a very articulate child, she she comes across as extremely wise and actually, you know, often the most, the character that I think we identify with most. She's also not had an experience outside of the order. So whilst we, you know, I spent a lot of the story reading and reading along going, you know, wow, she's incredible. She's so smart. She's into poetry. She writes poetry. She's, she's got a lot of perspective on this that we, that I kind of appreciate. And then you realize, remember that she's 10 and you think, well, she's extraordinary, but you realize that actually she's been kind of brainwashed into this, this ideology. She has been so she lost her parents when she was very young and the order kind of adopted her. So they've sort of taken her in, taken her, that this, this very young child under their wing. And we find out that she sort of 
values her duty above all, all other things. And, and you put that in context and actually her voice becomes really challenging because she hasn't had the opportunity to question that which she's being taught. So the mentors are sort of also parents to her and she loves them. She trusts them. They've raised her. And you just think, well, she's, she keeps, it keeps saying that she has a choice, but has she ever been presented with the opportunity to make a decision for herself? Yeah. I couldn't agree more with what you're saying too, especially about her voice and how articulate she is. From the beginning, I was, I, I kept thinking like, wow, you know, she has such a strong presence and sense of mind and it's almost unbelievable. It's almost unbelievable that a 10 and 12 year old could be talking this way. But just like you said, the order has taught her these words and the order is always encouraging her to be a full person, which, which was where I started to be like, where is the manipulation coming from? Like, where's the real threat coming from? in some ways. Like, of course, it's Otto Hahn, and if he decides to kill her for these weapons. But then also the order, you know, they're telling her, oh, keep up your poetry. And the president tells her that too, but they're encouraging her to talk to the president and be a full person. They're encouraging her to use her humanity as a protection, not because, I don't know, you know, it's, it's, I kept really going back and forth with this and I'll be interested to hear what you have to say about it of like, is it ethical what the order is doing to push her towards humanity, towards being a full person? She's 12 in order to convince this adult to believe she's a human. I mean, it's a lot of manipulation by all the adults in her life. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I think it it feels like brainwashing. It feels very unfair. It feels, there's a point even where I think uh, Huang in the kind of narrative is, says, she's talking about people who want the order to be disbanded. And she says, some of them wanted only adults to follow its dictates. People who'd passed through the magic threshold of being able to say yes to saving the world. So the implicit other side of that and what Huang kind of points out really directly for us is this child hasn't reached the point where she, where she's able to make that decision. And I think it, it's interesting because there's a point where, you know, there's a point where Naima herself feels like she's transitioning from this sort of child to adult stage. And, you know, she says she, um, she's been talking to Tej and, and actually Tej seeing this girl who he's sort of helped to raise in this very precarious situation starts to question what he feels about the order, this kind of, you know, extraordinary faith and belief that he's had in, in what they stand for. And this, and Naima, and this role of Naima being selected to be the carrier has, has brought these questions to him. And as Naima realizes that, she says, uh, Naima wondered if this is what it felt like to stop being a child. It's not about right and wrong, she said to him. It's about making it hard. So she plays the role of the of the faith. You know, she tells him, she reminds him what they're all doing here. And she's saying his words back to him, but she's not, she's not necessarily kind of amplifying it or able to go into, you know, this kind of bigger conversation because she's, she's, she's repeating back what we've heard um, him say to her. As you're saying that, and as I was reading it, I was just amazed at this child who so much is put upon by the adults and who has to both be the physical representation and bear the actual pain 
and possibly taking of her life, but based on an adult decisions. But then like you're saying, she's also reminding them what they're all doing there because adults are so, it seems like untrustworthy. Like adults are so untrustworthy that they have to have a child to remind them of humanity and to remind them about the decisions they're making in the total costs. And it made me think about how children are often the ones who bear the brunt of political decisions. And they're often the ones who suffer in silence because they don't have a voice. And just thinking about political decisions that are made that create famines and create, you know, blockades of goods. You think about children. around climate, the climate and our environment that is, that are only impacting often only impacting generations to come and that they don't have a voice. Yeah. And you think about how recent the UN Bill of Rights uh, for the child, it's so it's still very recent that even in our modern society that we recognize children as being deserving of full rights. You know, it wasn't until 1959 that the UN General Assembly adopted the Declaration of the Rights of the Child. And that was defining children's rights to be protected, to have education, healthcare, shelter, and nutrition. I mean, that's 60 years ago. There's this extraordinary line in the, in the story where she talks about, where Naima talking about whether her death would save those around her. So sort of save the people in her country or if it would lead to the death. Huang uses this amazing phrase where she says, uh, it would lead only lead to so many mirrors of herself being massacred, all for the crime of a birth on enemy land. And you just think like she, you know, Naima is thinking about children just like her and all they have done is being born somewhere else. And I think that happens again and again and again in our society. We assume that people are different or they don't deserve as much or they shouldn't have access to the same rights, benefits, money that we have, you know, in other, that we have in other societies because they were born somewhere else. I mean, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make any sense. And we get, you know, this 10 year old, her mind is wondering, and that just comes with this perfect, perfect description of the crime of a birth on enemy land. It just really, that, that hit me very hard. Oh, absolutely. I, I just, that's it. I mean, and that's the genius of Huang having the story be centered around a child. Because in the end, bottom line, and I'm sure lots of people will disagree, but the decision to put out a weapon like a SEER missile or a nuclear bomb and is the decision to kill innocent people. And that is not a decision that other humans, in my opinion, should be able to make, that other governments should be able to make. And because we do not see the complexity of others, we've seen it in so many different human societies, the us versus them dynamic, and we are, our lives are more valuable than theirs. So what does it mean? And this is, this is maybe the central thing of the story, is what does it mean to have governmental procedures in place to recognize enemies, in quotes, as people? What does it mean to build it into our system of living and war to stop and say, no, we are just as valuable as them, even in times of war? So humanity kind of wins 
in the end because of this sacrifice that the president would have to make because of the relationship that he has with this extraordinary young girl. He cannot launch the weapons because he he cannot kill her. So we get this extraordinary scene where he summons her to him. He is weeping. He has this, you know, dagger that he has, you know, and he has to very brutally, he would have to um, kill her, you know, right in the heart is in her heart or by her heart is where the capsule is. So um, there's this very intensive scene and he can't go through with it because he can't, he knows this, girl and he feels her humanity and he has a connection with her and so he can't kill her so he can't kill this he can't unleash this weapon that would kill the millions and there's something extraordinary about that yeah and he he turns to his generals and he says this thing of find another way and then we have this is really where i was like oh my gosh who is good who is bad in this story I was really amazed by this conversation that's then had between Tej and Naima. When Tej is overwhelmed by this moment, he almost saw Naima, who he's raised, killed, but they, you know, escaped. Uh, Otto said no. And he says that he has a plan. When a new president's elected, they'll choose someone else. Naima can run away. She won't have to be subjected to this. Someone else will be chosen. And Naima this is where she really makes a decision, I think, in the story. And this is where she shows her own power because she says, who would you choose instead of me then? She cried. You think I would pick someone else to die? And Tej, again, the adult, says, no, no, no. He, he hadn't been sleeping. He'd been preparing to sneak her away. Nobody needs to die for this. Mm. Not you, not anybody, please. And she says, no. Who would take this but me? This is the only way. I mean, she says that's escaping. What you have taught me that someone has to bear this price and I will do it. And they talk earlier in the story that the order used to be symbolic. So there used to be this sense uh, and they, they, you know, we don't get more detail than that, but they, they, there is a sense that there'd been other, there'd been another version of this where you were trying, they were trying to, I guess, make, make the kind of faceless, to humanize the, 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 the faceless enemy through the order, but it was done in a symbolic way. And, you know, the fact that they got to this point where that wasn't the case and they felt that they had to do it with this sacrifice, this real sacrifice. I think it's just very interesting that we get this turn, this U-turn, as you say, from Tej saying, almost everything I've ever believed is wrong because I can't bear to kill, that for you to be killed for this. It's very interesting, that shift, that huge shift in perspective, that loss of faith. And as you say, this clarion voice, this, this young 10-year-old girl. Yeah, absolutely. And it's she becomes the moral center of the story. And we see her at the end, you know, the ending is is not positive really at all. You know, she has not been killed, but she's thinking about she's facing the destruction of her city and she's overwhelmed by the senselessness of it all, wondering how her own mortality plays into this story, and she just says, you know, or maybe this was the end of everything. Their enemy didn't have seers themselves, but they had allies who did. 
If the president, it didn't comfort her, thinking of her own death as only the first in senseless billions, imagining that the world would outlast her by mere weeks before becoming a blank wasteland. And she says, why? She wondered emptily. Nobody wins. And then we hear a little bit of her poetry and you're just left with the destruction of it, the senselessness of it, the waste of, of these wars. That line, nobody wins, is just, uh, it's just a gut punch, you know? And we, we know that. Like, you've, we, you've, we've seen it again and again and again. And I think it's powerful that, as you say, we have that coming through the voice of this girl who would be sacrificed. So, Jen, why do you think this story is important to read? I think for me, it's a reminder. I don't feel like I read this story and was really grappling with, with you know, huge new ideas. But what Huang does was very concisely make me zoom in and zero in on those questions of how are we prepared as a global society to make these decisions? What are the safeguards that we have in place? Are they enough? And are they humanizing the real consequences in a way that could stop people from taking these decisive and and devastating steps? What about you? For me, I think that this story is important to read because it does such a genius job of looking at the relationship between adults and children and the cost of war on children and just the inherent uh, struggle and tension between what adults expect of each other and what they expect of children. And this, I, you know, I think I'll be thinking about it for a while, but that's really what I'll be walking away with is those two perspectives and what happens when they're switched. Yeah, I really agree. I think this one is going to stay with me as a lot of these short stories are another really interesting uh, story. So Lizzie, thank you for reading with me. Thank you for reading with me, Jen. The next story is Mary When You Follow Her by Carmen Maria Machado. You can find it on vqronline.org. You can find the links to all the stories at shortsthepodcast.com or by following Shorts the Podcast on Instagram or Twitter. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen. See you next week.